Our scripture today is a familiar one, uh, Matthew 22, 15 to 22, which you will find on page 1535 in your pew hymnals. Paying taxes to Caesar. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius and he asked them, whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed, and so they left him and went away. Now Pastor Joey will sermon. Uh, we're, we're going through a series on the teachings of Jesus, and in most of my sermons since that started, I came to understand the passage really recently. But this is one that I came to understand about two years ago when I was learning about ancient coins. So permit me for a little while to nerd out about coins, and I'll promise to be relevant. At the end of the Old Testament, the promised land, the temple, and the Jewish people were under the control of foreign enemies. Eventually, one foreign king, Antiochus Epiphanes, basically told the Jews that they had to stop worshiping God and circumcising and following the Sabbath and all that stuff. And so some Jews decided to rebel and kick out the Greeks. So they succeeded and set up their own government that lasted about 100 years. This was a big deal for the Jews. For the first time in 500 years, they actually had their own kingdom. They actually worked really hard to make that kingdom into what the Old Testament imagined. They expanded their borders to exactly what the Old Testament said their borders should be. They funded new high priests, made the Sabbath laws universal, and did a whole bunch of things like that. For our purposes, one of the most important things they did was print some very unique coins. Um, if you look at our quarter, for instance, for example, there's George Washington on the front and an eagle on the back. Most coins back then were kind of like that. They had a picture of a person and then some sort of animal on the back. The Jewish coins actually didn't have any pictures or images of living things because the Ten Commandments says that you can't make images of living things like people or animals. They were also written in Hebrew and not just the Hebrew that most people actually read, but the Hebrew that was used in the Old Testament, which hardly anyone spoke or read anymore. And all of this was because the Jews said that they were the continuation of the Old Testament kingdom of Israel. They were going to be faithful to the Torah, and they were going to be the Israel that they were always were supposed to be. This was a point of national pride for as long as that kingdom existed, which was roughly 100 years until the Romans conquered Judea. At that point, the Romans came in with their own coins, with their, pe with their people and animals on them. That includes the coin on your bulletin, uh, which was likely the same coin that was used in this story. When you fast forward about 80 years to Jesus' time, we now know from archaeological evidence that most Jews from Galilee didn't use Roman coins. Instead, they continued to use the Jewish ones, which at that point were 100 years old or older. 
in Jesus' own hometown of Galilee, there was a mint that made Romans, Roman coins. But even then, practically no one used those Roman coins but there, but only used the super old Jewish ones. And I don't know about you, but I don't see a whole lot of coins from the 1920s hanging around. The Jews at this time were refusing to use the empire's coins, and instead using extremely old relic coins from the old kingdom. In some ways, this was their rebellion against the Roman order. Even more, these Roman coins had images on them, which went directly against the Ten Commandments. Common Jews had a real problem with these coins. They thought using them might, at the very least, meant betraying their fellow Jews, and could even mean betraying God and his Torah. But apparently, there were some Jews who had a lot to gain from the Romans who did use these coins. Now we come to this dispute between Jesus and the Pharisees and the argument over coins and taxes. The Pharisees try to trap Jesus by asking whether they should pay taxes to Rome. Basically, if Jesus says yes, then he's alienating a lot of his followers, telling them that they should support the empire that conquered and subjugated them with their money. Paying taxation was a form of allegiance, and allegiance to Rome would be unthinkable. By paying your taxes, you show that you consider Rome to be your rightful ruler. We've seen this a lot over the past couple of weeks. The common everyday Jews thought that the Roman rule was an abomination, and they were, they were just biding their time until they had the opportunity to revolt. They were in Jer Jerusalem for the Passover, so this was a mixed crowd. You had a lot of Jesus' followers from all over Judea, who probably would have been all on board with this revolt thing. On the other hand, if he says not to pay taxes, then the Pharisees can turn him in to the Roman authorities, and he's gone, not a problem anymore. It's a clever trick that almost works. But then Jesus asked to see their coins. And here's where the Pharisees are in trouble. Because when Jesus asks for a coin, he doesn't pull out the Jewish coins that, that good Jews were supposed to be using. They pull out a Roman denarius with the idolatrous images all over them. Isn't it quite odd that when he asks to see a coin, they produce a denarius, just like the one on your bulletin? That's quite a scandal to those common Jews who aren't getting rich by being involved with Rome. The very first coins they give them weren't the old Jewish coins with the cool boats and stars and anchors, but instead the Roman coins with Caesar on one side and an eagle on the other. In other words, the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus by getting him to signal his allegiance to the empire in front of all these good Jews. But Jesus reveals that it's actually the Pharisees who are in bed with the Romans. The tables are turned now, and it's the Pharisees who are revealed for who they truly are. So then Jesus asked the question, whose image is on this coin? And that's a loaded question. The word for image is the same one that's used in Genesis 1 at the creation of the world. There it says, God created humans in his own image. It's the same word. This really helps to make sense of what Jesus says next. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar, Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And of course, this begs the question, what is Caesar's and what is God's? The way this passage is often preached is something like, give to the state those things that the state deserves and give to God those things that God deserves. But what this inter interpretation leaves open is what does the state deserve and what does God deserve? And I think we now have the tools to see what Jesus' answer would have been. He said that what you give to someone depends on the image imprinted on them. Where is Caesar's image? On his idolatrous imperial coins that have enslaved the Jews for almost 100 years now. Where is God's image? On yourself. 
you were made in God's image. You, so you belong wholly to him. Give to everyone what is due to them based on their image. Caesar's image is on your idolatrous and traitorous trash. So give your idolatrous and traitorous trash to him. God's image is all over you. He deserves your entire self because you were made in his image. Give that to him. Give to the state your idolatrous and traitorous trash. Give to God your entire self. He deserves it. Like so many things that Jesus said, this was exactly what the Jews should have known from the Old Testament. The fact that the Jews worshipped one God was kind of a big deal politically. It meant that there was only one way to be right and just in the way that you govern. And that was to align your will with the one true God. In the other societies that were around during this time, you could call yourself a god or the son of a god, and that meant that everything that you did was right. For the Jews, there was only one moral standard, the will of God. For the pagan societies, there were many standards. You could say, sure, maybe Aphrodite doesn't like what I'm doing, but Zeus does, so you should do what, you, what I say. Stuff like this was actually happening during Jesus' own lifetime. Julius Caesar was declared a god by the Roman Senate, so his adopted son, Octavian, ruled under the title Augustus Caesar, son of a god, which, by the way, was also printed on the coins that uh, until Augustus died when Jesus was about my age. In other words, the coins say, follow what the emperor says, or you'll be on the wrong side of a god. It's a good threat. But for the Jews, there was only one god, so there was no need to worry about that. Octavian, too, will be judged by the one true God. There's only one moral standard. Who cares what the dead God Julius Caesar says when you have to please the living God of the Jews? But now Jesus comes and proclaims that he himself is the son of the one true Jewish God. Augustus was the son of a dead God, but Jesus is the son of the living God. Therefore, he alone deserves your allegiance. What that means for us is that there isn't a comfortable bit of allegiance that we can give to the state. There's one moral standard, and that's the will of the one true living God. Caesar doesn't deserve any part of us, because it's not his image that's imprinted on us. Neither do Biden or Trump. If we give any of our allegiance to them, then we aren't giving our allegiance properly to God. It's a zero-sum game. We can't give our full loyalty to God and also have some leftover loyalty that we can give to some political figure or system. We can't give any part of us ourselves to Caesar and still give to God what is God's, since everything is God's. That doesn't mean that we withdraw entirely from society. But what it does mean is that whatever we do in society has to be done out of loyalty to Jesus alone and not to anyone else. If you're going to be a teacher or professor, it's going to have to be because you think that teaching allows you to build up the kingdom of God on earth by educating the next generation. But not because you have some idolatrous loyalty to the institution of academia. If you're going to be a Democrat, it's going to have to be because you think that the Democrat agenda fits in with the agenda of Jesus' kingdom. Not because you have given your loyalty to the Democrat party. That would be idolatry. If you're going to be a Republican, it's going to have to be because you think the Republican agenda fits in with the agenda of Jesus' kingdom, not because you have given your loyalty to the Republican Party. That would be idolatry. Your entire self and all your loyalty and allegiance belongs to God, and all your other loyalties are in service of God alone. 
there's only one God we have to please. So in practice, that means we should think carefully about our political loyalties. Because whenever we unduly give our loyalty to a political entity, we are giving to Caesar what ultimately belongs to God. There are some people, for instance, who feel that they cannot vote or participate in Tubman politics without giving it their loyalty. If that's the case for you, then by all means, do not vote or participate in politics. There's plenty of good things for a person to do in the world for the sake of God's kingdom that doesn't require you to vote or call your representatives or work on a campaign. Believe it or not, Jesus' kingdom has tons of interests interest that our political par parties don't have. You can work on feeding the poor or raising children or praising God or doing science or all kinds of things for the sake of Jesus' kingdom without even looking at a ballot box. For the majority of the existence of the Christian religion, most Christians didn't have the means or interest to get involved in politics. You can live a perfectly meaningful and productive life as a Christian without it. If you are liable to make politics an idol, then cut it out of your life. Telling someone like that to get involved and vote to do their civic duty is like telling a person with a history of alcoholism that they need to drink to fit in. No, they should be told to give that treatise, idolatrous trash away if it's their idol. Politics are seductive for a number of reasons. It has to do with the exercise of power. And there are certain kinds of people who are easily swayed by power. It can stoke up your resentments and create tribes. And that leads you to ideas that are really based on rewarding your friends and punishing your enemies, rather than actual truth and justice. If you are liable to make these kinds of mistakes, consider avoiding politics altogether. And even if you don't think you are, keep a careful watch on yourself and see if you can find others, if you can find others to keep a watch on you as well. Idolatry is like quicksand. If you find it's easy to slip into it, then you don't want to get anywhere near it. Because slowly it can envelop you and you won't be able to get out even if you try. The midterm elections are coming up. Take that time as an opportunity to look at yourself and your emotional responses. If you get too excited or too down, you just may have created an idol. I also don't think that it's a rhetorical accident that the image that Jesus gives here in this passage comes from money. Money has the unique ability to buy your loyalty. The Pharisees are about as zealous about their Jewish identity as anyone. They, knew that they know the Torah backwards and forwards, and they don't, follow, they don't only follow it, but they demand that their neighbors follow it so that the Jewish way of life can survive. Supposedly, their fundamental values were the traditions of the Jewish people and the worship of her God. Those sound like some laudable goals which made for a meaningful life. But somehow, these were the ones who happened to be on the side of the Herodians, the people who wholeheartedly supported Rome, when the long-awaited Messiah of the Jewish people and of her God was standing in front of them. Somehow, they were the ones that had these abominations of Roman coins. And where do you think they got these Roman coins? Oh, I'm sure they had their reasons. They had their justifications. We all do. Sure, we'll take some money from the Romans, more for us and less for them. But when push comes to shove, how different were they from Judas, really? Both of them took a little money, and somehow they went from zealous protectors of Judaism to the prosecutors of the king. Yeah, money is a powerful thing. 
you take a job that really pays well, but sometimes it asks you to do something that you really don't think you should do. You'll have your justifications, sure, we all do. But watch your loyalty. Is it still going to the right place? And when you get that money, who are you using it for, really? If money is corrupting you, give that idolatrous trash away. However it happens, whenever you make compromises to what you are, you lose a part of yourself. The Pharisees had a wonderful identity as the protectors of the Jewish tradition. They supposedly were working for the sake of the return of God's kingdom. But when push came to shove, the money spoke to them. And they were found actively working against God's kingdom. Whenever you make compromises like that, you give up a part of yourself and you may not get it back. Even in small ways, you betray who you really are. And you have to ask the question, who am I really? Unfortunately, it happens to us all. There are times when we do something we know we shouldn't do for any number of reasons. Maybe the money spoke to you, or maybe doing the right thing would cause you some suffering. But whatever the case, you ask yourself at the end of the day, who am I really? Do I have principles, or am I the kind of person who gives them up when it's convenient? At times like that, you may not really know anymore who you are. In some ways, it's tougher in Western societies. As kids, one of the most important things we try to figure out is who we really are. What's our purpose? Look at all our Disney movies. Frozen and Encanto and Lion King and The Emperor's New Groove are all about young people trying to figure out who they are. Fundamentally, all of these mo movies are about figuring out where your loyalties lie. Because your loyalties define who you are. In more traditional societies, the answer was easy. You are what your parents are. There's pros and cons to both, but as a young person, I, I can say that this whole self-definition de thing can be hard. There's so many choices. What if I choose wrong? What I think this passage helps us, helps us to do is to give you some grounding. Maybe you're young and you haven't figured out who you are yet. Or maybe you're older and you've made some mistake that may make you question who you think you were. You thought you were this person, but are you really? What Jesus says is that there is one unchangeable thing that makes you who you are. You are imprinted with the image of God, so it is only proper that you give yourself to him. This is, first, this is your first and most important loyalty. All other loyalties you can figure out someday, because they're all in service of your loyalty to the God whose image is imprinted on you. Maybe you come to think that you can serve God by raising a family, and so you give yourself in loyalty to a husband or a wife and to your kids, and all that in service of your loyalty to God. Maybe you come to realize that you're really good at math, and so you become loyal to your math textbook in hopes that you can use that math in service of God. Whatever the case, you have your fundamental loyalty figured out. It's still not easy to figure out where your other loyalties go, but at least you have a start. But why should we want our, to give our loyalty to God? Because we were made for it. In fact, everything in the entire universe was made for it, but especially us. Every self exists to give itself up in loyal love. Even God himself, before the creation of the world, existed in three persons that gave themselves up in loyal love for one another. 
The Father gives himself up to the, in love to the Son and the Son to the Father and the unity of the Holy Spirit. From the highest to the lowest, as C.S. Lewis says, every self exists to give itself up in loyal love to another. And when God created the world, he invited all of creation, but the humans that bear his image especially, to join in. Humans gave themselves up in worshipful, loyal, worshipful, loyal love to God, tongue twister. And God gave himself up in loyal love to humans. Humans tried to sort, short circuit this by living for themselves, but it hasn't exactly worked out for them. In fact, everything that has gone wrong can be attributed to that failure. Take a look at the things that are most fulfilling for you. And you can probably see that they bear some resemblance to this loyal love that existed before creation. To save us, Jesus died, Christ died and gave himself up on the cross in the greatest display of loyal love possible. And in his resurrection, there was a new creation. In other words, God in Christ was once again inviting us to join in the circle of self-giving love. And I suggest that we take it. Look at us. We bear his image. We were made for it. Let's pray. Almighty God, give us the perception to see where our loyalties really lie and the wisdom to recognize that we were made to give ourselves and worship to you because we bear your image. Amen.